then let's start this conversation, Rob. I, I appreciate your time today. You know, you've, I don't think too many people really have ever heard about or know the history of or the significance of economically and politically Zimbabwe. But uh, uh, it's always fascinated me because its history goes back to the British Empire and Cecil Rhodes and Rhodesia and gold and diamonds. and uh, But lately it's become, after having been the breadbasket of Africa, it's become the basket case of Africa economically and otherwise, perhaps. Yeah, uh, Tim, thanks for uh, having me today. Uh, yeah, a lot of people say that uh, Zimbabwe is a basket case nowadays. Um, but uh, based on my visits to Zimbabwe over the past uh, 15 years, uh, one of the things I have to say is that the country still has tremendous potential in terms of the level of education of its population, and uh, keep in mind that one out of four Zimbabweans, approximately four million, are actually abroad, whether in South Africa, uh, the United States, Canada, UK, Australia, and quite a few of them actually plan on uh, going back once things uh, stabilize, or at least uh, go back on a temporary basis as well as a stay in the country that uh, uh, they now are permanently living in. So in that sense, uh, I think that Zimbabweans have become much more worldly than, say, 20, 30 years ago. Well, for the past 30 or 40 years, Robert Mugabe has been uh, the man in Zimbabwe, uh, having uh, basically kicked uh, the British out uh, in 1980, right? Well, um, the situation in uh, Zimbabwe, if you look at Zimbabwe's history, is a very interesting. It's one of the few what we call settler colonies in Africa. So at its peak, there are about uh, by the by, the early 1960s, mid 1960s, there are about 250,000 uh, people who from who we would classify as a, of the uh, uh, settlers. Uh, many of them came from Europe. There's uh, uh, obviously a large British contingent, but also uh, places like Portugal. Uh, there's a fairly large. There was a fairly large Jewish population, a Greek population. Uh, also a, a, a South Asian population, primarily an Indian population. And so a large number of people went to Zimbabwe seeking uh, opportunities. Uh, back in 1923 was when uh, a kind of what we call um, responsible government uh, by the settler was proclaimed. So they've had that kind of um, uh, internal uh, self-governance. Of course, that, uh, gov that government is, was set up uh, uh, to uh, exclude uh, blacks from being able to participate. Uh, and in 1965, one of the things that happened after the breakup of what was known as the, uh, uh, the Rhodesia and Nyasaland Federation, one of the things that happened was that um, uh, Ian Smith uh, and his government uh, uh, dis decided to have a unilateral declaration of independence from 1965. And that really set the stage for a kind of uh, a guerrilla warfare that was uh, concluded with the uh, Lancaster House Agreement, uh, transferring uh, uh, power to majority rule. And that's how you ended up with uh, Robert Mugabe, who first served as prime minister based on the British model, and then with the consolidation of the uh, head of government and head of state, uh, he became uh, president. And he just died about a month ago. He did. He recently passed away. Uh, he's quite old. One of the things he said a few years ago was that uh, he had the bones of a 30-year-old. 
So <laughs> there are all kinds of stories about him uh, uh, passing away or he was terminally ill. And uh, most of the time he'd show up, you know, a few days later after he'd disappear. <laughs> and he spent a lot of time in the last few years really getting treatment abroad, in particular in South Africa, but uh, mostly in Singapore where he actually passed away. Interesting. And he presided over the past several years with what has become a rather extraordinary phenomenon with this hyperinflation that occurred uh, after uh, uh, having uh, eliminated a lot of uh, whites from their land uh, and giving it to various African tribes. Uh, it seems as though um, Zimbabwe went from being able to feed most of Africa to one where it couldn't feed itself. Uh, yes, that, that, that's correct. Uh, I would actually say that Zimbabwe's problems really started in the uh, 1990s, early 1990s. Uh, immediately after Zimbabwe became independent, uh, one of the things that happened was that the uh, government, uh, Robert Mugabe's government, wanted to uh, engage in a rapid process of uh, creating uh, public services that were accessible to the majority of people. So this meant things like hospitals, uh, education, opening up the uh, University of Zimbabwe to a larger number of people. Uh, in addition to that, access to water, uh, electrification, and uh, even the uh, um, uh, primary medical care. And uh, so in that sense, during the 1980s, the Zimbabwean government really did overspend. A very ambitious program. Uh, and uh, some, of, some of the things uh, many people in Zimbabwe look very favorably upon even to this day. So, for example, Zimbabwe has one of the most educated uh, population in all of southern Africa. That is, is, whether we like it or not, we have to give credit where credit is due, and that does go to uh, the uh, ZANU-PF uh, government uh, led by uh, Robert Mugabe. Well, several things occurred, I think, to give you a context of what, occur what uh, happened in uh, Zimbabwe that led to this uh, catastrophe, really a tragedy. It's such a beautiful country, industrious people, uh, kind people, uh, really uh, a lot of uh, 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 literature, arts, uh, in particular sculpture, a painting, and so there is a rich cultural heritage uh, in uh, Zimbabwe. And so I wouldn't count the Zimbabwe out yet, but uh, it's important to note that uh, Robert Mugabe did rule with the iron fist. Uh, although he publicly and rhetorically would claim that he uh, despised the British uh, and that uh, um, he even called the opposition leader at that time, uh, Morgan Changarai, Tony Blair's toilet. <laughs> and But Robert Mugabe was really quintessentially uh, uh, British. His accent, his dress, his education. And at the time he came into power, one of the things that he called for was reconciliation. And quite a few of the white settlers stayed. Uh, however, things started to turn around by the 1980s. You should be familiar with what was known as the Gukurahundi, uh, which was basically a massacre of the Ndebeles by the North Korean trained 5th Brigade, where 20 to 30,000 uh, Ndebele were uh, massacred. Ndebele primarily supported Joshua Nkomo, uh, which, so Ndebele were another tribe. That's correct. About 20% of the population concentrated in southern Zimbabwe versus more of the Shona. There are about 14 different 
uh, primary uh, ethno-linguistic groups in Zimbabwe, and the two main ones are Shona and uh, uh, Indebele. Shona is more in the Harare area. So um, President uh, uh, Mugabe's clan is actually from the uh, Shona uh, uh, group, and uh, so there was always this concern that the Ndebele were either separatists or that they wanted to uh, influence the uh, government, uh, sort of reminiscing back to the independent struggle when you actually had two different uh, liberation uh, movements uh, at the time. And so many people saw the Gukurahundi as a way of really trying to consolidate power and teach the Ndebele a, a lesson that the rebellion would not be uh, tolerated. Well, anyway, the initial response of the world was basically to ignore this. And uh, many universities in the United States and in the UK continue to grant uh, Robert Mugabe uh, honorary doctorates uh, overlooking the Gukurahundi massacre. Uh, Robert Mugabe's goal was to create a one-party state, uh, which he came very close to in the 1990s. But in 1999, uh, after the Economic Structural Adjustment Program of the early 90s, and then also the uh, war veterans who demanded a large pension and a payout, got their way, the economy really uh, started tanking. And that was really the beginning of the downfall of the uh, Zimbabwean uh, uh, economy. Uh, keep in mind that Zimbabwe at one time had the second most industrialized economy uh, in Africa after South Africa. And there was a lot of hope that, uh, you know, its neighbor, South Africa, apartheid state when Zimbabwe became independent in 1980, that uh, Zimbabwe would be uh, uh, a shining example of what could happen with a majority rule. So things really went uh, wrong. And in uh, 2000, Robert Mugabe decided that uh, he was going to side with the war veterans and hijack their program, which was basically uh, a land invasion program, land to the veterans, so to speak. And uh, what he did was he supported that and publicly declared support for the fast-track land reform program, uh, is, which is essentially expropriation. Most of that actually land ended up going to uh, those who were politically connected, and that contributed to the agricultural decline of the country. So there were um, 6,000 essentially white landowners who were separated from their land, or at least many of them were, mm -hmm. during this period. Zimbabwe went from being able to feed Africa to not being able to feed itself. Uh, yes. We also have to keep in mind that uh, one of the things that settler colonies tend to do is that uh, they pass uh, uh, legislation and regulations that uh, usually na what we call native land acts, which relegate a large percentage of the population to communal areas. And the most fertile land is seized and given to those individuals uh, who are interested in farming. And it is always, you know, in the case of South Africa, and land is a very emotive issue uh, currently in South Africa, as well as in Namibia. South Africa has recently uh, uh, been trying to uh, work out an expropriation approach, uh, and there's discussion of that ongoing in uh, Namibia. So we, it's not just the case of uh, Zimbabwe, but the claim that the government made in Zimbabwe uh, leading up to the fast-track land reform was that Great Britain and the Lancaster House Agreement had promised to fund the, uh, 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 the process of land reform, where the owners of the land, 
the white farmers would be compensated. Well, in the 1980s, if you think back to Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, very much opposed to uh, the Marxist rhetoric by uh, Robert Mugabe, decided that uh, they were not interested in funding any kind of land reform process and also came to the conclusion that the money would not be appropriated properly. So nothing was done. Nothing was done. And uh, increasingly, public sentiment was also turning against the white uh, landowners, uh, who actually had a very nice uh, lifestyle, frankly, uh, including, um, uh, including multiple servants, uh, guest houses, uh, maids, uh, guards, drivers, in addition to farm workers who were heavily dependent on the white landowner for basic services, including education and, and transportation, as well as uh, medical care. So something uh, had to give, and there was a lot of resistance amongst the uh, farmers themselves to give up that kind of life that they had come to uh, enjoy. And uh, so, currently about 300,000, sorry, 300 uh, white farmers uh, left in uh, Zimbabwe. Many of them have moved to other parts of the world, Australia, Zambia, uh, Nigeria, the United States, and have continued to farm. Uh, and also keep in mind that there were at least 500,000 uh, farm workers uh, who lost their jobs and uh, couldn't, and many of those individuals ended up becoming part of the diaspora, crossing the Limpopo River uh, into South Africa, seeking to work on the farms there. So it has really had a detrimental impact on the economy in uh, Zimbabwe. Yes, and, and after the uh, whites were separated from their land, uh, there began a collapse of the economy, which created this hyperinflation that you uh, witnessed personally. Can you give us an idea of uh, the scale of this hyperinflation from your personal perspective? Uh, sure, Tim. You know, the hyperinflation is was really unprecedented. And in 2008, I was able to experience this as a Fulbright Scholar to University of Zimbabwe. Uh, and I taught courses uh, in the Department of Political and Administrative Studies uh, while a professor there, uh, Mukono Shoro, Professor Mukono Shoro, was uh, actually on the campaign trail. So he was running for office. So I took his courses. And uh, the students had a very difficult time even paying for basic things like uh, transportation to classes. became a real big uh, issue. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's no water, no electricity most of the time. I mean, I would go at my, in the uh, college flats where I stayed at uh, for um, 14 days with no running water, and uh, there'd be days with no electricity, and a lot of that was a product of the inability of the Zimbabwean government to pay for uh, imports of electricity, uh, uh, for example, or to pay for the uh, costs of the chemicals to purify the water. And the infrastructure had really come to a grinding halt. So I remember, you know, back then they had the Zimbabwean dollar. And don't ask me what it's worth because it depends on the day, actually it depends on the hour, uh, and what kind of rate uh, you can scrounge up on the, uh, uh, on the black market. And I'd go to the store, grocery store, supermarket, and buy some mincemeat or ground beef, as it's known in the United States, and a small package would be $5 billion. So I'd do a little <laughs> bit of calculation. I said, oh, well, based on the exchange rate, two days ago when I 
exchange U.S. dollars for Zimbabwean dollars, it turns out to be $10 for about uh, half a pound of ground beef. Well, that's too much to pay. So I'll come back the next day. And if you come back the next day, there may or may not even be any ground beef. So usually people through um, texting, through SMS messaging system, would uh, find out what's on sale where, uh, whether it's in the supermarket or on the side of the street. Uh, and that's how we kind of tried to help each other. So I go back the next day, and the price of the ground beef would be $15 billion. <laughs> I said, oh, I can't, I can't afford this. Well, meanwhile, it turned out that the exchange rate had uh, collapsed even more. So then I'd get my few dollars and I would exchange it, and you'd be carrying uh, bagfuls of money. And exchanging money... You would take your American dollars and exchange them for Zimbabwean dollars. That's correct. And the rate would be changing every day, so most of, most of the day you would spend actually hunting down some groceries, you know, picking up an egg on the side of the road, and uh, the equivalent would be one U.S. dollar, and you'd have to shake it to make sure it wasn't uh, rotten, because usually if it's rotten, you can hear it, uh, you know, moving around inside. And you know, when you pay a dollar for an egg, I mean, it, it just doesn't quite work out, but it's just not available in the grocery store. The stores, shops are basically barren, and the reason why they're barren is because the government would impose price controls. Uh, and so the entire supply network had gone uh, underground. This uh, almost sounds like what's happening now in Venezuela. Uh, it's very, very similar kind of a situation with uh, uh, Venezuela. I mean, both countries experience hyperinflation. When uh, Zimbabwe in 2019 uh, decided to move towards a multi-currency regime, in other words, that uh, they would basically no longer use the Zimbabwean dollar, it had become defunct, I mean, people were using the lower denomination bills for basically kindling for the fireplace. I mean, it was just literally worthless. I mean, reminiscent of uh, uh, the days of Weimar Germany. Uh, and uh, so the dollar, uh, the dollar, the uh, European, the, the euro, the British pound uh, had become essentially, and the South African rand and Botswana pula, sort of as regional currencies, the last two, had essentially become the de facto currency of the uh, country. And one of the things that did was it actually did stabilize prices for some time. And that was followed with a, a, a contested election, which led to a unity government with the opposition. And the government uh, changed its ways, at least temporarily, in, especially in the economic area, not so much in the security area. Uh, and that helped to stabilize things. But uh, once again, in the last election, uh, it so happened that uh, ZANU-PF was able to dominate. That deals with some of the ineffectiveness of the op main opposition party, the Movement for Democratic Change, to really penetrate the rural areas, the rural electorate. And Zimbabwe also has some quirky uh, rules when it comes to creating the uh, voter rolls. Uh, and so as a result, the ruling party you know, came back into power and they came up with a, decide they want to have their new currency, which they call RTGS, real-time gross settlement, sometimes known now as the uh, uh, Zolar or the Zim dollar, which basically is money that uh, is electronic money that has become de facto the currency of the country. And we're back to a very similar situation to uh, uh, back to 2008. So many people are thinking this is 2008, 2009 all over again. So that's where it currently stands. I thought they were using the American dollar for a while. Well, that's actually technically now, once again, outlawed. Really? Yes, and they've moved back to this RTGS, which is basically electronic cash. So how we use a debit uh, card. 
So this is a way that the government can pay its civil servants without actually having money. Yeah, well, they would it can, just it can the save money. them on printing costs anyway. Yes, and the Zimbabwean government thinks that the more currency bills, they have these bond notes, which are $2 and $5 denomination is the highest, that the more they have of the currency and the higher denomination currency they print, the more it would fuel inflation. Well, actually, the real cause of the inflation is a bloated bureaucracy and uh, a, a large number of government-owned enterprises, which we call in our uh, political science jargon peristatals, such as Air Zim, de facto bankrupt, uh, National Railways of Zimbabwe, similar kind of situation, uh, also um, Zimbabwe Electrical Supply Authority, or Electricity Supply Authority. These are all government-owned corporations. Same thing with water. And the infrastructure has crumbled. And despite the amount of money that the Zimbabwean government has to put into these government-owned corporations, uh, the return on it is, is, is minimal. And it seems like the cost of maintaining even some basic services is just uh, uh, escalating. So the way the government handles this is that uh, they put in, in the uh, employee's bank account, essentially money that the government does not, doesn't have. In the United States, we're able to issue bonds. But we have a situation where Zimbabwe is not even part of the uh, International Monetary Fund. They can't print money, uh, and they cannot just increase the money supply uh, as easily as the countries that have hard currency like the United States can. They cannot run a continuous uh, budget deficit and uh, get away with it. It's much more difficult for developing countries to be able to, to do that. Is and, there a solution? Uh, yes, there, there, are, there, there are solutions. The problem is that 90% of official estimates say that 90% of Zimbabweans are unemployed. Well, they're not actually unemployed, right? Uh, they're part of what we call the informal economy. That means that uh, they're working, selling things on the side, uh, fix repairing uh, roofs. There must be a barter economy. Yeah, it's essentially a barter economy and bartering, but also being paid for services. It's essentially a gig economy in that sense. Uh, and so the people who are in the formal employment, the vast majority work for the government. So the government really doesn't want to cut the number of civil servants, right? Because if you cut the number of civil servants, the problem is it would add to unemployment. And it's one of the uh, uh, major sources of uh, stability for many families. In other words, an income earner who works for the government frequently takes care of an extended family. And if that person were to become unemployed, these individuals would no longer be able to do that. And it could cause civil unrest. I mean, civil unrest is part and parcel nowadays of uh, uh, the situation in uh, Zimbabwe, in particular uh, strikes by doctors, teachers. I mean, these are rolling and ongoing, right? And the government has responded uh, uh, with uh, brutal uh, attacks, uh, including the use of uh, live uh, ammunition. You know, it's kind of a macabre uh, uh, joke, uh, but uh, some people say the reason why they're not using rubber bullets is because the government doesn't have the money to purchase rubber bullets, but they have some leftover live rounds, so they're using live rounds. You know, I mean, it really points to the situation that the government is really unable to come up with the necessary funds to be able to, A, properly equip the police, properly train the police, the military is completely politicized, uh, and uh, people are seeing their living standards, including those who work for government, decline uh, rapidly because of this uh, inflation. Uh, and uh, something has to give. And any hope that uh, many Zimbabweans had 
that uh, Emerson Manangagua. Uh, what about w- Morgan Changarai? Well, he's passed away recently. Oh. He's a trade unionist by background. And uh, there were a lot of people were hopeful about him at one time. Uh, yes, uh, they were. Uh, although that said, the opposition party is also fragmented. Um, you can say now that definitely the ruling party has uh, various uh, cliques or factions within it, uh, but uh, it's very difficult to win uh, elections in, uh, Zimb- in Zimbabwe. Recently, in the rural areas, there was a by-election that took place, and many people thought that, you know, given the frustration uh, among ordinary Zimbabweans, that uh, the ruling party, the Zimbabwe African National Union, a patriotic front, some people call ZANU-PF, uh, for short, would be uh, uh, wiped out. But that didn't happen. By five to one, people voted for the ruling party rather than the Movement for Democratic Change, MDC. I don't suppose anyone would ever invite those 6,000 white landowners to come back and recreate the prosperity that they had in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's an interesting uh, question. There are some that would want to come back, but let, let, let's be honest, the vast majority are in their 60s if not in their 70s, to start back up again, redo the uh, the farm infrastructure, one, is problematic, and two, um, to go back to, I, I think the key really was to try to create a, a, a well-trained black commercial farmers uh, to operate, but there really wasn't any kind of attempt uh, I would say, by at least initially, just opposition by the uh, Commercial Farmers Union, which represented the white uh, farmers, to really share in any kind of uh, land reform and be an active partner to it. They've always thought that uh, because uh, of the Lancaster House Agreement, which enshrined private property, A, and B, uh, because of fear of the uh, uh, disinvestment by international concerns if Zimbabwe were to forcibly seize the commercial farms that uh, uh, many of the white farmers thought that uh, it would it could never happen and many of the white commercial farmers really never ever integrated themselves into the lives of uh, uh, Zimbabweans as a matter of fact there are large except for a handful of individuals, they were absent. And this is an issue that's being discussed in Namibia. In other words, uh, that the former uh, settler class, now that there's a new dispensation in Namibia, as well as in South Africa and in Zimbabwe, you're no longer Rhodesian, you're Zimbabwean, right? So you should participate in the social life of the country. But many of the whites in Zimbabwe would not participate in the social life of the country. Instead, they'd have their own country clubs, their own private schools, uh, their own uh, um, uh, uh, their own sports, and so they weren't very concerned about what was uh, going on. So, in the country, so so you think they got what was coming to them? Well, I don't think they got what, what was necessarily coming for them. I think there are better ways to do it. In other words, a better way of of land reform. Uh, than was done. Uh, I think that uh, uh, two things. One, we shouldn't forget the detrimental impact of the land reform on the country as a whole. It did have a detrimental impact and destroyed the agricultural basis of the country, and that's something that South Africa and Namibia would like to avoid. On the other hand, I should also 
let you know that there are quite a few of the uh, former white uh, farmers that have actually, they have the means to leave Zimbabwe, many of them did. Some of them did not, especially those who are on government pensions. Many of them are languishing in uh, uh, senior citizens' homes uh, and nursing homes uh, in, in Zimbabwe with, uh, with their pensions worthless. Uh, but those that had the means, quite a few of them left Zimbabwe. Others opened up businesses such as boutiques, uh, uh, also um, hostels, uh, bed and breakfasts, restaurants uh, in the large cities. So they're still, they, they are still there. But many of the, uh, the black farmers had nothing. I mean, they spent all their lives until age 50, till age 60, working for the farmer, and their lives are, were was completely uh, destroyed. You know, so I don't do you, think. Do you think this could mm. happen in other former colonial countries in Africa that they would drive the whites out to to return the land to natives? Well, I I think that this notion of driving out uh, the former uh, settlers or the colonialists is something that has happened uh, historically speaking. I mean, it happened in Algeria, for example, the uh, French Algerians, the Piedmonts, that had to leave. Uh, uh, the country, right? You had a similar situation in uh, Congo in uh, 1960. Uh, uh, a little bit of that in uh, Kenya. Um, and then, of course, uh, Angola and Mozambique. So in that sense, this is not uh, something that is new. Uh, what is interesting in the case of uh, uh, Zimbabwe is that the government decided for political expediency uh, and for anti-colonial rhetoric that they would forcibly seize uh, the land uh, and uh, would do it in pretty rapid uh, uh, fashion. Um, and it has definitely had a detrimental impact. The countries to watch right now in particular, uh, South Africa, where there's an inequitable distribution of land, and uh, Namibia. Um, for example, in South Africa, there is a landless people's movement that uh, basically are going to places, uh, including uh, white commercial farms, and uh, squatting on those farms, uh, demanding uh, uh, land. Uh, many of these people are, are truly desperate people in the sense that uh, they have nothing. And there has to be some kind of a strategy that can, A, transfer uh, expertise uh, to people who are genuinely interested in farming because farming is requires a certain skill set and uh, persistence. It's You can't be an absentee, uh, absentee farmer. It requires long hours. It requires knowledge of the land and the soil and uh, irrigation systems. And uh, so... Uh, are there successful black farmers in Zimbabwe? Uh, there, there are some that have been fairly successful. Uh, not not in the large scale sense that many of these commercial farmers were, but uh, the, there are uh, um, cases in particular dealing with the uh, production of tobacco uh, that has done fairly well. Uh, maize or corn, which is a staple crop in uh, uh, southern Africa, has not uh, done very well, uh, which raises an interesting question. Um, one, whose land is it and for what purpose is the land uh, producing goods for? If, you know, breadbasket for Africa, as Zimbabwe was known, known as, um, is, is, is an interesting proposition because countries that uh, uh, produce agricultural products uh, for, uh, for export may or may not be able to effectively feed its own population. Uh, 
many, many agricultural countries, as a matter of fact, that uh, export agricultural products are actually net importers of food. So exporting primary commodities without creating a diversified uh, base that uh, is capable of effectively feeding uh, the country uh, that that that's uh, another issue altogether. Well, this does sound very much like what's going on in Venezuela, where they relied on oil. They um, they plundered their uh, agricultural system. Uh, they imported a lot of uh, foodstuffs from outside. They made um, <clears throat> agricultural products uh, uh, so cheap that nobody could make a living growing things. And uh, they imported stuff from the outside. They had the government run the oil business, and now they have no business. Yeah, uh, Venezuela and Zimbabwe, I mean, some, some similar uh, stories, you know, involving uh, price controls. But uh, keep in mind that without any kind of uh, uh, effective duty system, in other words, uh, import taxes on imports, uh, especially agricultural products, uh, agribusiness in the United States and uh, other countries uh, the scale is such that uh, no local farmer in Africa can really compete unless there's a high level of mechanization uh, in the form of co large commercial farms or uh, sort of specialty products, uh, which, you know, most of those specialty products are really for the gourmet markets uh, uh, abroad. So it's very difficult if you're going to operate in an international trading system, which emphasizes the importance of uh, uh, minimizing tariffs and free trade, for local uh, producers to be able to compete. And that's one of the main issues we see, for example, in uh, the collapse of uh, agriculture uh, in uh, Oaxaca, Mexico. That is, local farmers cannot compete with uh, American agribusiness. And so the prices of the overseas products are significantly uh, cheaper than that which can be produced uh, locally. And that, that is a problem, this idea of uh, rural sustainability. And I think, I mean, to some extent, we're kind of seeing that in upstate New York, too, with in terms the of the dairy, dairy farmers. Industry. Just That's can't right. compete with the large-scale uh, producers. How often do you go back to Zimbabwe? I try to go back, uh, you know, uh, fairly frequently. I think it's important to, I mean, many people like to go to different places all the time. Uh, sort of visit every country in the world in their lifetime kind of thing. Well, I'm not really into that. I like to see change over time in places and keep up with places as they change and as they adapt to uh, uh, realities on the ground. And so I try to go back at least once every two years uh, to uh, Zimbabwe and uh, South Africa. So yeah, I'll be going back in uh, November. I was just there in March with a couple of students uh, and I was able to you know, show them around and uh, tap into some of my old uh, connections. So that was uh, very good. Are you optimistic about uh, the next year or so? Well, I think the next uh, couple of years are, are really going to be uh, important uh, for uh, Zimbabwe. I think that uh, there has to be some kind of negotiation with the, uh, uh, with, with the opposition party, a move to try to break the uh, impasse that currently exists, because the uh, human rights abuses that's currently taking place in uh, Zimbabwe is really bad for uh, attracting uh, tourists to Zimbabwe, and Zimbabwe has quite a few uh, UNESCO World Heritage Sites uh, that uh, people ought to go and visit. By the way, travelers to Zimbabwe are safe. Um, I've never had anything happen to me. 
of course, I don't go and hang out in the uh, uh, demonstrations, and so I've had absolutely no problem. Um, but uh, this kind of uncertainty and human rights abuses makes it very difficult for the tourism uh, uh, industry as well as for foreign uh, investment to come into the country. And Zimbabwe does have to reform its uh, investment laws uh, uh, in order to attract that uh, foreign uh, investment, which has been uh, very scarce and has primarily come from uh, uh, the Chinese and the Chinese government which is another whole issue about uh, China uh, colonizing African countries such as uh, Ethiopia, Zambia, and uh, uh, Zimbabwe and Sudan. I hear they're doing that in order to be able to uh, have access to raw materials and resources. Yes, that, that's, that, that's correct. Uh, on the other hand, I think the Chinese economy is also changing. Uh, chi Chinese people are the demographics suggest that they are now entering into a stage where there'll be an aging society. Wages have dramatically increased. So a lot of the factories that used to operate in China in terms of the uh, production has uh, moved uh, to places like uh, Vietnam uh, uh, and uh, Cambodia. So there is an offshoring that's taking place in uh, China uh, as we speak. Well, listen, thank you very much for your special insight into this exotic place in the world. And I hope we can speak again when you return after your November visit. Well, thank you very much, Tim. Thank you, Appreciate Rob. Appreciate it.